Welcome to Encounter. On this episode, the future. Today we're going to be exploring some big questions, including the future of humanity, whether religion and science can coexist, and is there life out there? My guest today is Martin Rees. I'm Martin Rees and I'm an astronomer and cosmologist. I spent most of my life working in Cambridge in various capacities, but in the last 20 years I've become involved in a broader range of policy issues through being president of the Royal Society, which is the uh, Commonwealth Academy of Sciences, and through being in the House of Lords and being a campaigner for various causes. Martin, you've called yourself a cultural Anglican. What, what did you mean by that? What I meant was that I've got no beliefs in religion, but I was brought up in a traditional English home where the church existed and I went to schools where we had chapel and I came to love the music and the architecture. And I feel that the Anglican Church and all it stimulated is an important part of our culture and I hope to be buried according to its rights, as incidentally George Orwell said, although he was not a Christian. So I support the church and wouldn't like to see it weakening. And I think it emphasises the fact that for many of us, Religion is not a matter of dogma at all. It's a matter of community holding us together when so much divides us and making us aware of long-term traditions when things are changing so fast. So that's why I value participation in the church and would like to see it stronger. I think many of our listeners would be able to relate to that mm-hmm. because, of course, you know, you're right, religious identity carries a number of different aspects in mm-hmm. terms of peoplehood, culture and ethnicity and so many different things. Yes, and I don't believe in anything special about Christianity. Had I been born in Iraq, I'd have gone to the mosque in the same spirit. Or you might have gone to a church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But let's move on to... Uh, your work in science. What, what got you first interested in science? Because you, you study maths to a very, very high order, mm-hmm. but perhaps you can explain how you brought your studies to your research. Well, I had no particular childhood ambition. I was interested in nature and numbers, and I turned out to be good at mathematics, and uh, I did well enough at maths to be admitted to Cambridge. But after three years reading mathematics, I realised I wanted to apply it to something, because I realised my style of thinking was more synoptic and synthetic rather than... You're a syncretist at heart. Maybe, yes, and uh, partly by accident, I ended up in the Applied Mathematics Department. I got a studentship, and that was a time when exciting things were happening in cosmology and astronomy, and this was the mid-1960s, and it was the time when we had the first firm evidence that the cosmos started with the Big Bang, the first evidence for black holes in the universe, etc. And it was an exciting time. I was able to have a fairly quick start and uh, made some contributions to clarifying some of these ideas of quasars, the Big Bang, etc. And of course you've done that in a way that you've reached beyond the very specialist audience, which is unusual for scientists, that you've tried to make your work accessible and there aren't many scientists who do that. Well, I think In astronomy, there's quite a lot because of the huge public interest in astronomy. And one thing which I think is interesting is that the public, although it's often said they're not interested in science, they're surprisingly interested in even the most irrelevant things, you know, dinosaurs and uh, 
the Higgs boson and space, etc. They fascinate young people. And I think that has, has less of education. You've got to inspire people with uh, what seemed fascinating and then head from that towards something which is practically useful. And so there's a wide public interest in astronomy. And also it has the other advantage over the other sciences in being perceived as positive and non-threatening. Uh, the public is ambivalent about nuclear science and about genetics because we know it has applications which can be damaging as well as good whereas astronomy is something which uh, rather like um, evolution biodiversity is something everyone likes and so I think we have an incentive to popularize the subjects and I uh, enjoy it because I'd get less satisfaction from my work if I felt I could only talk about it to a small group of fellow specialists. I enjoy trying to explain it to a wide audience too. And of course, you know, when any of us look up at the stars, we can all relate to the shimmering of, of lights. And I think for our listeners, of course, one of the descriptions that was given by Stephen Hawking in terms of trying to understand the universe is it's like understanding the sort of famous quote, the mind of God. And I wonder whether you think that's a useful way of, of describing those sorts of questions. Well, I'd say first that the um, night sky is something which all humans throughout history have wondered at and looked up at. It's the most universal feature of the human environment. And, of course, people have interpreted it in their own way in different cultures. And, of course, we are only really in the last hundred years coming seriously to understand it. Of course, Newton understand parts of it, but we've developed our understanding. And so I think it is uh, something which fascinates people. If I am talking to some stranger and I say I'm an astronomer, the first question they will ask is often, is there any life out there? And I say that fascinates me too, I can't yet answer it. And the second may indeed be, what stars at all do you believe in God? And with that question, though, of trying to explain it in a way that people can understand, I was listening to uh, Desert Island Discs, and Carlos Frank was on it. I don't know whether you heard that episode. And I didn't he, hear it, but he, I know him well. He yes. talked about leaving God outside the laboratory when he began his work, when he went into doing his experiments. Uh, and again, it relates it to something that ordinary people, whether religious or not, can understand, because that's an issue, that's a language which people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yes. We all doing science share the wonder and the mystery with those who are religious. And indeed, we share it more deeply because we realize just how intricate everything is. I would say that the most intricate things are not in astronomy, but in the biological world. Even an insect is far more complicated than a galaxy or a star. And incidentally, one reason why I am skeptical of any religious dogma is that for most of us, even a hydrogen atom is pretty hard to understand. And that makes me deeply suspicious of anyone who claims to have more than a very incomplete metaphorical understanding of any deep aspect of reality. I like a quotation of Darwin, a letter to the uh, American scientist uh, Gray, where he said, these matters are too deep for the human intellect. A dog might as well attack the mind of Newton. Yes, now you've touched on the fact in your writings about the limits of the human brain. There was something in, in Newsweek that you wrote which really intrigued me. Will scientists ever fathom all of nature's complexities? Perhaps they will. However, we should be open to the possibility that we might, far down the line, encounter limits because our brains just don't have enough conceptual grasp. So there's a limit to what we can know. And in your work, in your recent work, you talked about human development, that we may be, in a hundred years, unable to understand what we're like. What are the implications of that? 
Well, I think the point you've alluded to is important, which is that future evolution of humans will not be Darwinian natural selection, which takes place on hundreds of thousands of years, but it'll be technical, genetic modification, cyborgs, adding on e electronic bits to our brains and things like that. And so it'll be much faster. And for just that reason, we can't really conceive what the greatest intelligence might be like in a few hundred years. But I think the one thing we do know, quite apart from that, is that there's no reason whatever to think of humans as being the culmination, because we're the outcome of four billion years of Dominion selection, starting the first life on Earth. But we know that our sun has five or six billion years ahead, so we're less than halfway through in time. And moreover, as I've just said, future evolution may be much faster. So we can't conceive what may happen in the future. And there's no reason at all to believe that our brains are matched to understanding the deepest aspects of reality any more than those of a dog are. And the implications of that is that we will be very well, estranged, if you like, from three or four generations. Yes, well, that, that is a difference that uh, in terms of human character and human emotions, there's been no change over the last few millennia, which is why we can resonate with ancient literature. And I think what may happen, and this is a scary prospect in many ways, is that uh, in one or two hundred years from now, there may be a sort of diversity where some people are sort of engineered and modified and others aren't. And uh, they might not understand humans as they are today, even though they might have some algorithmic understanding of what motivates them. They won't have the emotional resonance. And uh, I think this is a serious issue for society. My personal take on this, which I've discussed in uh, my forthcoming book, is that we should try to do what we can to constrain and regulate the use of these technologies here on Earth. But we can expect that there will be a few crazy pioneers who by the end of the century may be trying to live on Mars, which is a place to which they're ill-adapted, of course, anyway, and they're away from all the regulators. So I think it's those crazy people who will start the development of a post-human era right. by using all the techniques of uh, genetic modification and cyborgs in order to modify themselves away from all regulation. Do we need a kind of code of ethics for this field? We have a code of ethics for doctors, you know, and, and do we need one for scientists in this area? Well, we certainly need a code of ethics, not only because uh, some of these things promote the yuck factor, as it were, but I think we also need a code because of the dangers of misuse. I mean, what terrifies me is the fact that uh, the, the knowledge of how to modify genes and viruses is now widespread. And, of course, this means that even a small group or an individual could cause a global catastrophe, and it's something new. And this certainly, as everyone realises, needs to be regulated. We need to regulate dangerous applications. But what makes me very depressed is that I don't think these regulations can be effective. You can stop people building an atomic bomb, perhaps, because that needs special purpose, conspicuous facilities. But the facilities needed to do something dangerous in the biotech area are widespread and not very special. And I worry that trying to uh, control this globally is as hopeless as trying to regulate the drug laws or the tax laws. Which is where education comes in, presumably, because you, you can't regulate everything. Therefore, you need to build it into the custom, the culture and the educational system. That's that the best you can do. But still, the worry is that a few yes. mavericks will uh, not obey the code. It's true. But do we have 
education. I mean, should, should not scientists who follow in your footsteps have to do courses, for example, on the ethics of algorithms for sake of a better term? I think they should. I think it's very important that this should be done. I think uh, as part of medical education, this has been routine for a long time. And I think it's necessary in the other areas. And uh, I know, for instance, some people here in Cambridge are thinking that the mathematicians need some sort of ethical regulation because some of them are going to end up working for these quant hedge funds which uh, as Ade Turner rightly said are socially useless because they're just uh, creaming off money from the rest of us and so if they decide on their career they ought to know the ethical connotations of going to work in that sort of area. Are you a bit more optimistic about the future? In the book, uh, The Final Century, question mark, it felt a little bit more depressing and pessimistic than on the future. Well, maybe true. I mean, I still think we'll have a bumpy ride through the century. I I never really thought we would actually wipe ourselves out completely. It's very hard for that to happen. But I I do worry about uh, sustaining the fabric of society when... um, individuals are empowered, people in Africa know what they're missing and all that sort of thing. So uh, I do worry about preserving society. And also I worry about some very serious technological... uh, Yes, it's the individual that's what we cannot control, two or three people. And the big difference is the individual um, can have uh, a a global cascading effect now. That's new. Well, it's like security has changed dramatically with suicide bombing. I mean, mm-hmm. it used to be assumed yeah, yeah, that yeah. somebody would attack you but want to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to change your whole strategy yeah, 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 if that person doesn't mind absolutely. blowing him or herself absolutely. up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. David. Yeah. You said in your opening remarks that you'd recently taken up social policy and science policy and so on. Is that a nice complementary way of operating? I think it's important we do both. And uh, as I said, over, over the last 30 years, I've done this. And I think it's something we have an obligation to do. I think scientists in particular have an obligation to care about the way their work is applied. They can't always determine how it's applied. But there's a nice analogy which I got from Michael Atiyah, which is that uh, even though you can't control what your teenage children do, you're a poor parent if you don't care about it. Likewise, if you're a scientist, if you created some idea, you're a poor scientist if you don't care about it and if you don't try hard to ensure that it's used for human benefits and that its harmful uh, potential is quenched, if possible. What's your view about religiously inspired, sometimes anti-scientific teaching, like in America, to do with creationism? Well, I mean, I think some religious dogma which is manifestly contrary to science is seriously damaging. It's a great great pity that creationism is still a force, especially in the US. And it's odd that in the United States, which has many of the world's best scientists, it also has many of the, uh, the most sort of uh, analphabetic anti-scientists. What's your reflection on, I mean, in the past, the church has been quite anti-science and... What's your view on that? It's quite notorious. Well, I think some people would contest what you just said. I mean, obviously, there's a famous Galileo case, etc. But uh, some people, like Professor Wharton at uh, York, who wrote this big book, would claim that perhaps uh, 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 religion has been a positive force. And, of course, many of the great scientists, you know, Newton, Faraday, Maxwell, etc., were religious people. And so I don't think one can say necessarily that uh, Christianity has been... Uh, hostile to science or has impeded its growth. It sounds like what you will um, find the most difficult, and and, and I agree with you, is the question of dogma. So it's less religion qua religion and more about dogma and doctrine. 
Yes, um, what I can't understand is how people can really actually believe in the resurrection or believe in miracles um, and believe that one religion has exclusive truth. I just can't understand that. I'm aware that people who are neither uh, naive nor unintelligent do have this, but I, I just um, am lacking the ability to do this, and uh, I just can't understand how so many people do believe this. At the same time, it's when religion has something to add to the conversation that might be helpful in a debate, not a debate, but a discussion about um, uh, the future of the world. We'll come on to your, your, your new book in, 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 in the second half. But I, I just I looked at the centre for the existential threat, which is uh, something here in Cambridge that you, uh, you were a co-founder of. Yes. Um, and it intrigued me that you, in that group of very renowned and sort of, you know, very brilliant academics mm -hmm. I, I, maybe I missed it but I didn't see the philosophers and I didn't see the theologians and I didn't see the sort of ethicists maybe, how, did I miss them, are they there? You did because the founder was Hugh Price who was a philosopher Right, mm -hmm. but how much do they again I want to push that a bit about setting up a sort of taking ethics seriously and taking religion seriously as a contributor to the future well, I think ethics is serious. I mentioned Hugh Price, um, and uh, Parthadas Gupta um, works with a brilliant person called uh, Simon Beard, who has a PhD in philosophy, um, and uh, another of the leading people is a lawyer. So we do have a very strong interdisciplinary group uh, for precisely those reasons. That is, it's not just science. I mean, um, scientists um, are experts in science, but they're not experts and have no special credentials when it comes to uh, ethics. And it's really helping scientists understand these cross-disciplinary contributions, mm -hmm. but likewise having ministers of religion, for example, yes. understanding the, these sorts of uh, these big questions that you're exploring. Well, I mean, I, I certainly uh, hope that some ministers will take an interest in what we're doing. Thank you. Well, I think we'll leave it there, and we'll come back in a moment. You're listening to Encounter, a podcast by the Wolf Institute. If you like this programme, check out our new podcast series, The A to Z of Believing, a 26-week crash course on religion and society. You can listen on our podcast website or search A to Z Believing on your favourite podcast provider. Welcome back. Martin, you had some controversy yourself with the Templeton Prize. We touched on Templeton earlier. It's a foundation that seeks to answer big questions, very much involved in questions between science and religion. How do you feel looking back on that? It was a wonderful recognition I got from Templeton for work on big questions, etc., because they knew very well that I was not religious. But I think the foundation is slightly controversial some of his other works. I mean, I'm less happy with it free enterprise politics than about his religion, to be honest. But I, I think it is true, obviously, that there are some militant atheists, small-time Bertrand Russells, who are very hostile to religion. I actually believe that these militant atheists do more harm than good. And I'd give two specific examples of this. First, suppose you were a teacher and you had some Muslims in your class. If you tell them that they can't have Darwin and their God, then they will stick to their God and be lost to science. And another thing is that I think we all feel that religious fundamentalism, whether it comes from Christianity or Islamic campaigners, is a bad thing. And I think we would all see the um, leaders of the major religions as being on our side against it. So to rubbish those people is counterproductive because fundamentalism is a real danger 
and we need to muster as broad an alliance as we can against it. And I think the Archbishop of Canterbury is on our side. And so to rubbish him, for instance, I think is damaging to an important cause. Well, I think we have the same problem in religion, of course, where we have people holding very extreme views, I'd probably put rather than fundamentalist mm, views, who are so opposed to scientific research mm. that they would even create a museum in the history of the world without reference to the dating of the world or different right, right. eras mm-hmm. or, or yes. the creation of the Ark. Where, where is that, David? Kentucky. Kentucky, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's full size, yes, 550 full size feet long. Yeah. Yes. Have you seen it? No, 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 nor, nor have I. But it's holding these together, really, and building up constituencies that will work well together, which actually is very much the work of the Wolf Institute mm-hmm. between religion and society mm-hmm. as a whole. Now, in your work, do you think we will ever have a, a theory that brings everything together and that can sort of explain, not necessarily the meaning of life, but these big questions of quantum theory and so on? Well, we've made huge progress in the last 50 years and I expect huge progress in the next 50. But, of course, what happens in science is that with each advance, new mysteries come into focus. Uh, If I take my own example, the things that I was thinking about when I started research have mainly been settled, but the things we are thinking about now couldn't even have been posed at that time. So that's the nature of science. It's open-ended. But whether we will ever complete it is very doubtful. I think it's most unlikely. It may be um, an unending quest, but maybe our brains are not up to it. So, but I think one thing which does irritate scientists is um, when religious people say, um, you can't understand uh, this thing, there are some mysteries in evolution, Yabu, we can explain it, you can't. I think what many non-scientists don't realise is how difficult it is to understand even something simple. And most of the things that we see we don't understand at all. We understand very little about life, still less about the brain. And so we're just beginners. And so there are lots and lots of mysteries. And what I don't like about religious people is when they say they've got flip answers to this all about who lit the touch paper in the Big Bang and all that. You know. That's true of so many different disciplines, though, of course. You come up with simple answers on the whole. If it was so simple, we'd all be there at the, 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 the line. In, in my experience, there aren't uh, those, um, those simple answers. There's a, there's a lovely quote in your book, if I may. Um, Einstein and the quantum could be parochial bylaws governing our patch of the cosmos. I mean, this is built on your idea of the multiverse. Well, this is a speculative idea that the region of space that we can observe with our telescopes, vast though it is, could be a tiny fraction of physical reality. And in the parts we can't observe, there's no strong reason to think that the laws of physics are the same. There could be a big variety. And this is an idea that's uh, not yet tested. It may never be tested. It's certainly speculative, but it's not a crazy idea that humans may only have so far probed a tiny part of physical reality. And as the scale of this seems to be mm-hmm. potentially getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. yet we're in this terrible fix of time shortening before we can sort, yes, out, sort out present-day problems. Well, that's right. It's interesting that we are in a world which we know has been there for millions or indeed billions of years, but our planning horizon is shorter. And I like to give the example uh, of the builders of a cathedral. They thought that the world had existed a few thousand years and might only last another thousand, but they nonetheless were prepared to invest in building something that would not be finished in their lifetime. But the big difference is that the medieval people, despite their limited horizons, they thought that their children would have the same lives as them. They didn't think there were rapid changes over 100 years. And so 
for that reason they were happier than we are now to make long-term plans. Um, but it is indeed a huge disjunction now between the um, timescale over which we can foresee what will happen to humanity and the planet and technology, which is shrinking to less than 50 years, in contrast with the time span for the cosmos, which is six billion years more for the sun and maybe almost infinity for the rest of the universe. And you explore this in the book that's coming out mm-hmm. on the future, which, mm-hmm. which follows your previous book, The Final Century, yes. question mark. Yes. And I just wonder whether you're, I mean, you talk about a bumpy road ahead for humanity, yes, yes. but I wonder whether you're a little bit more optimistic in the future than perhaps you were a few years ago. Well, I mean, I'm a technical optimist, but I'm something of a political and ethical pessimist. Political because I think it'll be very hard to avoid serious setbacks and disruptions because we are becoming less governable. Everyone feels they have a voice through social media and people in Africa now know exactly what they're missing. They have access to the internet and certainly mobile phones and so we know that uh, there's an awareness of the huge injustices in the world. And unless we take much more drastic actions to uh, alleviate these, and I mentioned one or two in my book, then I do think we're going to have problems. And also, I worry about the ethics of our world. Uh, I was reading the, in many ways, excellent book by Stephen Pinker, who is very optimistic. Very optimistic, yes, that's right. He quotes all these these figures quite rightly about how life expectancy has improved Mm -hmm. and and has gone down. uh, But I think there are two worries I have. One is that there's a new class of threats which are catastrophic and they're improbable. But also, I think we can't claim any ethical improvement in our societies because it's true that in medieval times, things were pretty miserable for everyone, but there wasn't any way in which they could have made them very much better. Whereas now, there's a huge gap and a growing gap between the way we could make the world with present technology and the way it actually is. So collectively, I think our moral level has fallen rather than risen. It's funny because I I consider myself a sort of an optimistic worrier because like you I think there are grounds for optimism but I see those grounds in the next generation and I'd be interested in your comments on the the next generation Mm. or two coming through of the scientists because you know those in their sort of 20s and 30s are able more effectively than us to separate wheat from the chaff, whether it's in the social media, whether it's at social action, wanting to, to improve things, that, that there's a sense of that we're burdening them more than perhaps our parents burdened us. But I, I, I have a hope anyway that they're mm. up for that challenge. Well, I hope so. And certainly children born in the last 10 years will probably be alive at the beginning of the 22nd century by a catastrophe. So they naturally have a longer term vision than older people do, and they are idealistic, and let's hope there are enough of them, and they don't get too constrained by the sort of narcissism of the social media to lose this idealism. So I think it's very important that we do think long-term. And, of course, the main problem, really, politically, is that whereas most of the important problems confronting the world, climate, environment, population, etc., are long-term and global, politicians have a focus on the local um, and the parochial. 
And the short term. And short term, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's uh, and, and so it's, it's very hard. And incidentally, this is where the world's religions can help because uh, I'm on the Council of the Papal Academy of Sciences, which I think has been very important in providing the scientific grounding for, for instance, the Pope's encyclical in 2015, which was hugely influential. Yes. He got a standing ovation at the UN. It had a big effect on uh, both uh, leaders and general public in Latin America, Africa and East Asia, and had a huge effect. And that's what's needed, because politicians will only respond to something, keep it on their agenda, if it's in the press all the time, or if it's in their inbox all the time. And that's why it's important to have a continuing pressure, and that's where the Catholic Church can be hugely important, and also other religions too. Can you think of any examples of scientifically well-informed politicians in, in your memory or before? Oh, I think, I think there, were quite, there were quite a few. I think President Carter and Obama, they were well-informed. I've uh, had a very interesting meeting with Governor Brown of California, who's well-informed, and even some of our ministers in this country have a genuine interest in, interest in science. But of course, you don't need to be an expert scientist. You just have to realize that many of the issues that need to be addressed have a scientific dimension. But on the other hand, scientists should themselves accept that they are very inexpert when it comes to politics or anything else. And scientists, indeed academics, tend sometimes to preen themselves on being sort of specially able. And I think it's very important that all academics, especially scientists, realise that academic ability is just a subset of intellectual ability, which is far broader and is possessed in at least equal measure by people in politics, journalism, many other professions. Perhaps I need to remind ministers of religion of the same thing. Indeed. Uh, yeah, they yes. can get very focused on their own particular doctrine or denomination mm -hmm. or dogma yes, uh, without yes. seeing the, the broader picture. Yes, yes. And again, it's bringing that together in a way that they coexist with a respect and a genuine understanding. And it brings me back to that point of, of having almost... In the training, for example, of ministers of religion, learning about other faiths is an optional extra. If there's time in the curriculum, we do it. It seems to me that it's absolutely vital if you're going to be a religious leader today to understand the diversity of the religious experience. And likewise, I just wonder, oh, please. But if I take up on that, I mean, uh, is that consistent? If you really believe that Christianity is a unique revelation, then how can you get people to believe? It's not about getting people to yeah. believe another dogma, it's getting them to understand another dogma. And if you're a, a devout Christian who believes the world has changed in the Christ mm. event, if we can mm. call it that, yes, yes, yes. you can't deny that there are billions of other people who don't believe it. Now, you but do, you have to think they're wrong. You may well, think they're wrong, yeah. you may think they're wrong, but you're still going to work out a way of living next to them. Yes, sure. And you can't work out a way of living next to them without understanding them. Right. And I suppose I would argue, from any religious perspective, that I understand myself better in a dialogue in a, and a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change me who I am or my religious mm -hmm. self-understanding, mm -hmm. but I just have a, bit of, a, a slightly different yes, insight, yes. and I don't think that would go against any particular religious belief. No, right. mm -hmm. So you can hold on to your particularities of faith, mm -hmm. saying, and at the same time give the space for the other. Yes, and I think it's especially hard for Christians because Christianity is the uh, religion with perhaps the most extensive intellectual underpinning. I mean, if you're Buddhist or Shinto, it's not the same. So for other religions, the ritual is what really matters. And of course, it's easy for people to 
joining ritual because that clearly has a benefit in a, a world where so many things divide us that we can get together in some some well, sort of common I think activity. a number of other faith traditions or adherents of other faith mm. traditions wouldn't necessarily agree with you so for example many Muslims who are mm. devout wouldn't necessarily agree that it's just about the tradition and practice I think there's a certain element that's required of teaching those faith mm-hmm. traditions that within yes. their traditions they've got the resources to relate to others mm-hmm. I may think you're wrong mm-hmm. and you may think your fellow scientist is wrong but you will engage and discuss and come to some kind of understanding of that person's position even if you disagree with them yes yes and and I, and I think there's something to be learned there from the religious perspective yes but but of course I suspect that in, in a sense the tolerance that's grown is because relief is less fervent if you really believe as they did in the old days that you go to hell far if you don't believe the right thing then your natural motive is to try very hard to convert people so it's the belief is now less fervent except among a small minority now isn't it which makes us more tolerant so I think we wrongly think of tolerance as being a a newly acquired virtue I think it's a consequence of a decline in faith I mean certainly it's a consequence of the enlightenment and as a result of the enlightenment there have been massive fractures in religion I think that the the issue is not so much the fervence of the piousness I think the issue is the extreme view that I'm right therefore you're wrong therefore go to hell from a, a sort of a very strict extremist viewpoint I can still be a very pious fundamentalist mm-hmm. I would suggest mm-hmm. to you and believe that I'm right and you're wrong but it's not my judgment that you go to hell it's up to the almighty I personally don't have such a problem with that I'm a Jew I don't have a problem that people who claim to have a belief in the the Christ events that change the world or in the culmination and the perfection through the Quran replacing Christianity or and succeeding Judaism and so on as long as they leave me the space to be who I am. Yes. And don't try to convert you. Or respect, yeah, don't try and convert me, but engage with me. I don't mind that. Witness their faith. Surely that's also part of the scientific milieu, that you engage with one another and try yes, and, yes. and prove your position. doesn't mean you don't respect your colleague. No, but the difference there is you're, you're hoping to come to some, uh, some common view at the end of it, which, if you're a Christian you could only achieve if they all convert and accept you you're right all along. Or you just accept the fact that God will sort it out in the end. Yes. Mm-hmm. A bit of a cop-out. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time I've been accused of copping out, Martin, I have to say. And maybe that should bring us to the final question into this podcast. And again, thank you so much for coming in. Will there be a human race in 100 years? I think almost certainly you can conceivably imagine something that wipes us all out, but that's very unlikely. But I think the human race will be different, society will be different, nation-states will be different, and in particular, the difference will be caused by the huge developments in biotech and artificial intelligence. And I think what's going to be crucial for governance is to try and ensure that we benefit from these powerful technologies, and at the same time, control their downsides and minimise their misuse. And I think this is going to be a big challenge for governments and a growing tension in particular between freedom, security and privacy if we are to ensure that these techniques, which are widely accessible, aren't misused. Martin Rees, thank you very much. You've been listening to Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler. Next time, we're going to be exploring the Torah and the Koran 
what do they have in common and more importantly how do we deal with difference you can find us on the normal podcast platforms or on our website thanks for listening <laughs>